Welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. I'm Jeremy Gilbert. I'm here as ever with my friends Nadia Idol. Hello. And Keir Milburn. Hello. And today we are talking about war. So Nadia, this was your idea. So why do we, why do we want to talk about this subject? So several things really. I mean, the, 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 the main thing, the obvious thing that's instigated it is at the time of recording now, I think we're well into the second week of war uh, raging in Ukraine. And that has had an effect, both emotional in terms of um, how it's affected people seeing those images and hearing what's what's going on and how people are fleeing and refugees and all of that. That's the horrible kind of war scenes. And I've had different kind of feelings about it and feeling like we, we, we want to talk about war in a general sense, but also because on a personal level, I, I started my political life effectively as coming through the anti-war movement um, about the war in Iraq in um, 2001, 2002. So I kind of, I've got all of these these thoughts about you know self determination and and how people interpret war and how it shows up sort of different things in the discourse that I thought would be really important for us to to talk about really and obviously like I said this is it's it's this this podcast is going to go out way later so we want to just talk about some of the general aspects around I think war and the imaginary as well so that's why I want to to talk about war. Yeah, I mean, but we're because there's a time lag from when we we record and then it, it gets edited and these sorts of things. We don't actually know what the situation was going to be with it of the Ukrainian war by the time uh, this podcast comes out. So we want to, I think, we want to talk a little bit about. We're going to start with the Ukrainian war and then move out and talk about war uh, on a more abstract level about the way people have tried to understand war, the way war has developed over uh, through history. It's changed shape um, several times. And also the way we can understand how war fits into to, into the general pattern of human behaviour and also how war fits into capitalism and imperialism. I think you'd have to talk about all of those things uh, if you wanted to talk about, about war. But I suppose the place to start would be about about our own sort of impressions of, of, of the last couple of weeks. Like I can say that I, I was incredibly shocked when Russia invaded Ukraine. I just didn't expect that to happen. Or the experts I was reading or listening to on podcasts were all, you know, were all saying that it's absolutely not going to happen because there's no, there's no upside to for for uh, Putin. There's no upside for Russia. It's just bad for Russia. It looks like that's probably going to turn out to be true. So it was one of those moments when your conception of the world obviously. Uh, um, was inadequate, or my conception of the world was inadequate, and something else was going on. You know, I think that's a question we might come back to later on. Like, what causes war? How much of it is can you can you get at through like this thinking about this rational calculation of interests, um, and how much of it is other stuff, perhaps psychological stuff, perhaps ideological stuff? We'd have to get to that. So anyway, I was shocked, and obviously, you're seeing this. You, you're understanding that there's going to be huge movements of people. It's going to be huge death and suffering, and that's upsetting and shocking. But at the same time, there's also 
you know, I've been quite shocked and scared. I'm going to put my hands up to that about the the way that the the, the sort of shocking news of that invasion has affected the UK about the way people are talking in the UK and thinking about this. You know, uh, one of those things. One of the things that's happened is that you know a lot of the sort of underlying assumptions people carry around with them perhaps journalists carry around with them, commentators carry around with them. They sort of come out in these sort of moments of shock. And so we've seen basically just straight out racist and white supremacist commentary from journalists, you know, which is just received as as normal. So there's been numerous journalists saying, we can't believe this. This is bombing against civilised people. Um, not not these people, not people in 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 the Middle East, or these people who are who are you know uh, who aren't civilized. Presumably, this is white European people. I'm not actually sure if anyone said white, but like that's what the that's what civilized and European. And they have for. cars like us. That was one of the comments. It's just <laughs> incredible. It's just incredible. Yeah, yeah. go on. No, but it's it's one of those things where that you know all of a sudden what's not said becomes said. Exactly. And you sort exactly. of you you see it. Um, but then as it's gone on, it's become even more frightening because, um, you know, basically people discussing whether nuclear war, um, you know, how bad is nuclear war actually? Is it survival? You know, is it a bad thing if we if if we if nuclear if nuclear weapons become used? And this is in relation to should the should NATO um, install a no fly zone which would mean engaging directly in the war uh, and shooting down russian planes and the threat of escalation and that th- escalating into into nuclear war i saw a, a, an estimate from i think it was a financial company who said there was a te- they thought there was a 10% chance of of world destroying nuclear war within the next 5 years basically I'm, who knows whether that's accurate or not but this is a level of of talking about the prospect of a nuclear war, uh, which I hadn't seen since the nineteen eighties, basically, and and you grew up on the sort of, or you became politicized around the sort of Iraq War anti anti war movement, Nadia. Mm-hmm. I probably became politicized, uh, probably it's hard to remember now around the sort of uh, uh, fear of nuclear war in the early eighties, particularly the, the the growth of CND. Uh, around uh, uh, the importation of cruise missiles, nuclear cruise missiles into US cruise missiles into the UK, and it became a huge, huge movement. My mum took me up to the hands around the base protests around Greenham Common in, I'd imagine, 1983. I'd have to to Google. (laughs) Um, I've also got this anecdote that I remember the other day about um, I was absolutely obsessed with nuclear war when I was a young kid. I knew everything about it, and I used to worry a lot about it. Uh, and I remember sitting in my bedroom with probably like a ZX eighty one or perhaps a BBC Acorn, one of the early computers. Nice. And uh, I hear this huge explosion, and I immediately thought that nuclear Armageddon had started. And then I looked at my computer, and it was still working. And I knew that a nuclear explosion would cause an electromagnetic pulse, which would shut down the electrical (laughs) system. So I knew that it wasn't nuclear war. And when I found out later what it was, was it was somebody who owned a factory who who basically set it on fire and a load of stuff blew up. And they set it on fire because what was actually going on in the early 80s was this huge economic crisis, basically, uh, and with lots and lots of, of, of businesses and factories. And, and basically that moment of the big moment of deindustrialization in the UK. 
Yes, I was a very strange child, but there was a lot about <laughs> a lot of fear of nuclear nuclear war around. And so it's just an absolute shock that it's come back that people are talking in really quite a blase way. Yeah, I, I just I've just found it very difficult to to cope with, like you said, that this kind of blase way that people are talking about the p- potential for nuclear war is just incredible. Well, I mean, I don't know what you've thought, Jeremy, about this. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say I found it incredible. To be honest, I found it completely unsurprising that the, you know, the people who've been talking in a really blasé way about nuclear war, the people who've been, you know, t- who've been demanding that, you know, the people on the left who are, you know, in any way hostile to NATO be publicly punished and expelled from the Labour Party. I'm not surprised that they're behaving that way because it's pretty consistent with the way they've normally behaved. And a lot of those type of people have been behaving, you know, since the early 20th century, which is that I think it's, it's really fundamental to their way, their worldview. You do not acknowledge like what you don't acknowledge Western imperialism as a phenomenon. You just don't acknowledge that it ever happened. Or if it's a phenomenon, it's a phenomenon that only ever happened like 100 years previously to when you happen to be speaking. Therefore, for example, it's just not allowed at all, just epistemologically, it's not allowed to be, for example, sceptical about NATO and or, or to dispute NATO's claim to be a defensive alliance with no offensive, with no offensive role or capabilities. And... You know, I just think even I mean, my you know, I'm not like I'm not uncritical of stop the war. I'm not uncri- I'm not I'm not I don't honestly I don't follow geopolitics with enough expertise to even have a view, to be honest, on whether, you know, you can say that Putin was Putin was justified in feeling threatened by the expansion of NATO. But I do know that the people who've declared that a statement which is not allowed to be made in public are people who belong in a political and ideological lineage within which it is forbidden to acknowledge that there is such a thing as Anglo-American imperialism, like after the end, especially after the end of the British Empire, that there have ever been, that have ever been hostile actions and or morally problematic actions undertaken by British and American governments or military since that time and it is essentially a cold war it's essentially an extension of cold war liberalism in to that extent i mean it is really sort of extraordinary uh so but i haven't been at all surprised to be honest like i haven't been surprised by it it's exactly what i would have expected from those people i think from like the the sort of labor right ideologues i think you're right yeah that that's what you would expect like nato membership plays this very weird psychopolitical or psychosocial role in their in their worldview you know and, it seems and this to is... be like the only geopolitics thing that they really love kind of you know well they're going to get behind any war <laughs> basically i think there's there's something about war as like you know basically giving them agency that they they basically like basically so if we're going to war they're fucking for it basically yeah well there's a couple of things aren't there? we talked about this when we were preparing for the show there's there's a couple of different things. On the one hand, there's just their obsessive commitment to Atlanticism. By Atlanticism, I mean the assumption that America is a force for good in the world and Britain's alliance with America really has to override all other policy considerations, uh, domestic or foreign, military or otherwise. And 
I wrote an article for New Statesman about this a few years ago, saying we're really within British politics, it's only the far left, and actually the sort of left, far left of the Tory party as well, actually, who historically have just had any real critique of Atlanticism, that most strands of, of the Labour Party and the Tory party have just in their different ways been obsessively Atlanticist. So there's been mad pro-Reaganite Atlanticists, but there's also like a tradition of Labour Atlanticism, which basically thinks that America, like remembers the America of the New Deal as if that's like the real America and that's the America to which we must always be loyal forever under all circumstances. And they all end up justifying a sort of an effectively a Cold War politics and a post-Cold War politics. And then there's also, yeah, there's this thing about just agency, which I think is significant because, you know, my own view, this is a sort this is a somewhat psychological reading, which I don't like to do too often, of 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 an individual, which I also am always saying we shouldn't do. But let's do it anyway. Let's do it, <laughs> let's anyway. Do it anyway. Like okay. I mean, one of the weird in some ways, one of the weirdest and least analysed like things that happens over the in British politics over the past thirty years is Tony Blair. And Tony Blair, we're used to condemning Blair and his government as neoliberal. The thing is, by sort of 2005, Blair isn't even a neoliberal. He's a he's a full blown neocon. I mean, we know we know as a matter of record that he had secretly converted to Roman Catholicism during that time. So he seriously becomes converted to what is this kind of class of civilizations like conservatism. Like while he's prime minister, he he starts off a Clintonite neoliberal, but he becomes a, like a proper like neo imperialist neocon. And my source of analysis of that is, that, and it's true of a number of the people around him, and it's something that it, it, it tends to happen to these sort of centrist technocrats, is these people find themselves in office, they find themselves in government, and they realise that they have got themselves into office under circumstances which mean they are not going to be able to implement any sort of a heroic reform programme. You know, they're not going to be Lee or... They're not going to be FDR. They're not even going to be Lyndon Johnson, like implementing the war, you know, carrying out the war on poverty, which we're going to talk about in, in other terms later. All they've signed themselves up for is administering a political and economic program whose coordinates have entirely been determined elsewhere and by other people. Yeah, they're just managers of neo of advanced neoliberal capitalism. That's all the job history has for them. And they want something else to do. You know, this is Blair. He wants he wants a more heroic role than just being the person who completed the project of Thatcherism. And so, what heroic role does he th- does he decide history has allocated to him? He decides that history has allocated to him the heroic role of defender of the West. You know, like fucking Aragorn. You know, with the you know, diff, you know <laughs> and you know defender of the West against the Islamic threat, basically against the threat of the swarthy hordes from the east. And they love that role. And you can see it now. You can see with a lot of the FBPE people who are so into the idea of a nuclear war with Russia, you know, they want Putin to play the role of the swarthy, the leader of the swarthy hordes from the East so that they can be heroic defenders of Western values against um, against this perceived existential threat. And I think it is all a displacement from the fact that on some level these people they sort of know or if they they don't know they at least experience 
the fact that they are people who have authority, they have prestige, they have status, but they have no real power because they have accepted uh, their roles in a political system which doesn't really give them the opportunity to change anything or to be remembered by history for having changed anything. And so I think they love the idea of a war because it it gives them a sense of you know, being great leaders and being able to do something. Hmm. One song we could mention is uh, Shipbuilding, the the lyrics of which were written by Elvis Costello, actually. It was performed by Robert Wyatt. He did the, the, I think he he did the main performance of it anyway. It's a beautiful song and it's sort of linked to the the Falklands War. I think it comes out in like 83 or something. Uh, it gets as it gets into the charts in 1983, I think, but it's sort of linked to the to the Falklands War, and it's sort of a story of the lyrics, sort of a story of of uh, the, the sort of industrial collapse that happens there, and then the Falklands War happens, and it gives a sort of like temporary revival to the shipbuilding industry, but like it's a really really mournful song, in which you know you recognise that. Those those sort of towns and cities are also supplying the soldiers who are going to be sent off to, to to die in the Falklands, and it's got this really famous line: "Diving for dear life, when we could be diving for pearls." It's just a beautiful song, anyway. Well, I ask you, the boy said that they're going to take me to task. It's just a rumor that was spread around town. Somebody said that someone got filled in. I think the FBPE thing, which was followed back pro EU, and then people have been joking it's followed back pro extinction because they, <laughs> like FBPE in your in your uh, uh, Twitter tagline would basically indicate you're probably going to be in favour of. Uh, provoking a nuclear war with uh, with Russia, but I think there's something else going on. I, I think that, that those people are generally not the, those sorts of ideologues. I think that I think those people are the ones who've moved, who've found something in themselves once again that they we probably wouldn't have expected to be there. Basically, and that's, and I think that like, this idea of shock provokes some sort of war on nuance. God, we are, we're going to use war as a metaphor a lot today. We <laughs> we're going to talk about We've war as a metaphor perhaps a bit later. But like it's that that shock which sort of like basically cramps people's uh, analysis or, or 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 suspends people's analytical abilities or basically prohibits nuance and thinking. I think it's but worth. Did thinking these people ever more. have any nuance? You know, if they had no nuance about Europe either, you know, the, the, the uh, no, I agree. That... Uh, yes, I, uh, yeah, no, no, I do. But agree, it's not. Yeah. This is not. But there's a bigger catchment than the follow back pro EU, yeah. which is kind of like also the centrist dad club, like you know, in, in terms of how they they comment on culture, etc. There's just people, you know, the commentariat who are who are saying, well, you know, would it would it be that bad? No fly zone, like maybe we need. And you're just like, what the absolute fuck are you saying? Yeah, well, I agree. I agree. I what we think what the absolute fuck are you saying? I just don't agree. I don't think the war has changed them or done anything new to them. I think they were that bad. I think you know, but you the know, stakes they're, they're are his, higher if you're hysteria. talking about nuclear war. Well, they are. If you think there's a real threat of nuclear war, which I'm, I'm dubious about, I would say, given the stakes around climate change, for example, and these people's willingness to just annihilate, you know, have have absolute hysterics and annihilate any chance 
of a government in this country for the next 10 years that would do anything about climate change. I just don't, I'm just saying, I don't find it surprising. I don't think, I think it's just consistent. It's consistent with their hysterical, you know, their hysterical attachment to a certain kind of technocratic liberalism and it's obverse, which is just this kind of muscular militarism. I just don't think it's, a, I don't think it marks a change. I think for me, it's just completely I don't continuous. think it marks a change, but when you, when you, when you see it, when you see it displayed in words, some of the things that people have been saying, I think it, it, there is a, there is more of a like Kia said a suspension of analytical ability than you'd expect even from those people because you know those people are not stupid. Some of them might have terrible analysis, but they're not stupid. It's also that the general sort of the, the general sort of feeling in the country. You know, I, I, you know, obviously, I was like horrified that, that Putin invaded Ukraine. Um, and, you know, obviously Putin bears responsibility for that. It's, it's a war of aggression. Do you know what I mean? We can talk about British wars uh, or, 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 yeah, British and American wars of aggression, such as Iraq, etc., and the parallels between them. But basically, uh, the, this sort of mood, what I was reminded of most, actually, of the mood as soon as the, 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 the invasion happened and just after that was a little bit like the 2011 riots and like the... That sort of, you know, um, those sort of uh, those centrist commentators talking about sending in the army, and you know, we need. You to... talking about you talking about the riots in London? The the London riots, yeah. Well, they're, right. they're around England as well. But that sort of mood of like people switching, like suppose liberals switching to like absolute vicious authoritarians, and like that's and really that... interesting that well, you make that parallel. Like, well, the reason I thought of it is because. David Cameron at the time had this really mm. famous statement, which is saying we need to condemn a little more and understand a little less. And it's def- that's definitely going on about this. This this you know, if if people want to talk about and think about what are the circumstances in which we reach this incredible situation where Russia invades Ukraine, that there was there was a, a meme I saw going around Twitter today of Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space, phoning the future and saying. You're, you're fighting a war. Uh, uh, Russia's fighting a war in Ukraine. Who are they fighting against? Because it's utterly inconceivable at that moment that that could happen. Do you know what I mean? That condemn a little more, understand a little less. That that wasn't Cameron. That was John Major. In like years before that, it's not your fault. I've been seeing loads of people have been quoting that, and it's just it's a meme. Are you sure? It, yeah, absolutely. Then he brought it back. So that well, he didn't. Though Cam- Cameron was trying to position the Tories as more liberal. It wasn't Cameron. Someone's just completely misremembered that and gone circulating it. Okay. I, I, I thought he did. <laughs> One of the great historical events to produce a lot of musical response around the question of war was obviously the Vietnam War. There's a few famous songs which come out of the protest and folk movement of the 60s. One of the most famous in figures to come out of that moment well the most famous single individual was bob dylan uh, i think pro- by far the most sophisticated actually of dylan's protest songs is his song with god on our side uh, lyrically it's the only one that's interesting really because it does offer a real critique of the relationship between american kind of national self-identity and imperialism and colonialism and current contemporary forms of militarism and the civil war too was soon laid away and the names of the heroes I was made to memorize 
with guns in their hands and God on their side. I wrote an article about shock a little bit after the after the 2011 riots, and I was sort of using Naomi Klein's book a little bit, The Shock Doctrine, where she links up a few things. So she starts that book with um, with CIA torture manuals and how they use both shock and electric shock to try to rupture a prisoner's sense ability to make sense of the world, basically. So you get people vulnerable; they can't make sense of the world anymore. Therefore, they're they're you know they're not quite a, a tabula rasa, but like basically they're they're therefore unable to resist um, interrogation and these sorts of things. And then she applies that to to both like the what was called the shock therapy, which introduced oligarchization into into Russia and other other countries in Eastern Europe following the fall of the Berlin Wall in the late 1990s. That's where Putin comes from, of course. That's where the Russian system as we know it now comes from. Naomi Klein is writing just after the Iraq war, perhaps around the same time. And there there was this 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 doctor's military doctrine of shock and awe, where you just send huge amounts of of um bombing uh, in order to create shock uh, within the population and and basically disrupt people's ability to make sense of the world and to disrupt lines of military hierarchy etc etc and so yeah that that sort of like there's it's almost as though there's sort of a deluge of unexpected information information you didn't expect to happen which disrupts your sense of the world and, and prevents you from making making sense of the world which sort of almost pushes you or makes you makes you vulnerable to really simplified versions of of or simplified narratives or simplified versions of of world events basically and i think that that's one of the things that opens people up for this this suspension of analytical abilities or, and this sort of like this idea that like nuance Nuance or explanation equals too much sympathy for for somebody who you do, who who is the baddie at this moment, etc. And that brings in this thing of like, if it's a big problem, what do you do? What do shock absorbers for the left look like? You know, they must. It must be some repertoire of like collective analysis, presumably, that you have to go back to in moments of shock, because if you know that's you have to then start to remake sense of the world, etc. But like, how do you do that in a way that can even reach the centrist dad Twitter. I think that's really, really difficult, basically. And in those moments, what you really need, the left needs that sort of like liberal centre um, as a as a guard or as a, you know, not quite to make up the numbers, but that's the moment in which liberals need to be liberal in the idea that people think what liberalism is, i.e. some sort of regard for for uh, human rights, etc. But in fact, that's the exact moment when liberalism uh, just suspends all of that and checks human rights in the in the bin yeah well uh, yeah i think that's right i mean it comes back to the question of consciousness doesn't it and and, it, and mm. what it means to have radical consciousness or even revolutionary consciousness i think the difference between something like revolutionary consciousness and less less developed forms of political consciousness is that the it's less as i think properly understood it's less susceptible to the to shock and it's mm. less susceptible to shock because it is un un it is uh, not naive about the what the nature of historical change yeah so that information yeah, yeah, will yeah. will Agreed. be less unexpected and therefore easier to yeah exactly yeah. yeah and it is a big problem i mean i think i've been i mean it's a formula i used years ago like when writing about this kind of thing so a huge problem for the left and this is true across europe in the states is that the people who are willing to engage 
who are emotionally inclined to militancy are, are not at, are completely disinclined kind of long-term strategic thinking and patience and you know and people who are inclined to long-term thinking and patience are disinclined to militancy whereas in fact you just you have to have both and by and the what does all that have to do with what we're talking about it is you know it's a huge problem it's a problem that we're always coming back to it's a huge problem for the left is this big block of people whose outlook on historical change is they are basically liberal progressivists they basically think the historical norm is gradual progress social progress and every deviation from that norm is a deviation it's not normal and therefore they they can be very very critical of neoliberalism and all of its legacies for example but they still quite can't get their heads around the fact that actually like neoliberal is more normal in terms of the whole history of capitalism than like the post-war expansion of the welfare state was and that you only get victories like that you know, occasionally and you only get them by fighting very very hard for them it's people's inability to get their heads around that it's really people's which i think creates this situation in which they're constantly shocked they're constantly shocked by both the corruption and decadence of the right. They're easily duped by centrist technocrats claiming to be progressives like them. And they're easily convinced that anybody with a, a more left-wing critique is a, is a wild and dangerous revolutionary who can only be a threat to progress rather than its agent. And, it, you know, it is really a problem. The thing is, I would say, and this is sort of consistent with other stuff I've said on the show lots of times. I mean, part of the problem, part of the problem for the post-Corbynite left is I think a lot of people, a lot of pro-Corbyn people who thought, who think of themselves as being like really radical and really revolutionary, I don't, they're not, they don't have this consciousness. They sort of thought Jeremy becoming leader was going to, was a restoration of a historically, of a sort of historical norm that, and when it turned out not to be, it turned out that the norm was for the right to fight back very hard, to kick everyone as hard as they could at every chance they got. They got very upset by that. They haven't got over it emotionally. They're still very angry at it happening and they're angry at everybody who tells them, well, that's normal. So, but ultimately, if you're at, on some level, if you're really angry and shocked by that stuff, then you're not, you're still not getting it. You're not getting that this is what it's like just like you're not getting that you know war is normal war yeah, war is, is really a normal part of history but also on an energetic level like be, being angry I mean as a woman this is a difficult thing I mean this is this is like going off topic but you know as a woman once you once you see the world through feminism it makes you angry all the time because of patriarchy but it's kind of the same it's kind of a similar situation to what you're talking about but what you're saying is on a on, on a grander scale Jeremy which is that if you're if you're constantly going through this shock at like how this other terrible thing has happened or systemically or like you were saying like an, a maneuver that the right has done it actually wastes a lot of your energy you get very tired very quickly and you lose the ability to 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 have some kind of strategic thinking about what next or how do I change my behavior or how do I change my point of analysis to, to move forward and through this moment, whether you're talking about war or whether you're talking about the next thing that the right has done to expel the left from the party or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's exactly the same. It's exactly the same. That's a really it's a really good analogy. I'm thinking about arguments I've heard between sort of veterans of women's liberation and sort of younger feminists. And and one of the things I've heard from the sort of veterans, which I find quite persuasive, is that 
there's too much emphasis in contemporary liberal and radical feminism on, on creating safe spaces and not, not enough emphasis on, on basically enabling girls and women to, to toughen up and tough it out. And their their position, the reason they say that is, is for exactly that reason. That, that at some, it's not that women should just tolerate patriarchy. It's that at some level, at the point of developing your feminist consciousness, you have to accept patriarchy is exists. It's not going to stop existing just because you've realised it existed and are angry about it. And you've got to both fight against it and try to create spaces where its effects are minimised. But you've also got to just stop being perpetually outraged and shocked and surprised, but as if you know it's a surprise that it's happening. From a meditative practice space, my intervention on that, like talking about stuff around war, is that once you, it, it's the level of co- going back to consciousness. It's the level of being, of being able to be aware that I am now in shock, or what I am experiencing yeah, is right. shock, yeah. and therefore, how do I process this? Rather than say I can't be shocked, like something has happened and it shocked me, how do I deal with that emotion as it? undulates through me yeah yeah you're right how do i allow that and therefore how does that interface with my political energy and my relationships with other people and my analysis and that is what that's why where where consciousness is important and that's why consciousness raising in left groups is really important because you're bringing people to a level of being able to and i don't i don't really like using the word cope but i think actually it's important here of being able to cope with the reality under late capitalism whether it's you're talking about war or like human rights abuse or rape or whatever and like and and to be able to move through that and forward and kind of build something progressive rather than be constantly in a state of you know which is a a, a base state of like panic or anxiety that's a really important point because also I mean, the logical conclusion of what we were saying a minute ago, what I was saying, the logical conclusion might be that what we're saying is that everybody should be a sort of like a sort of caricature Lenin, like kind of cold revolutionary with no feelings, no outrage, no morality. And that, that's wrong as well. You know, we know where that ends up and it's not a good place. Like you've somehow you've got to be able to manage both to being completely unsurprised by the evil which is which is done in the world not sure but, about evil i don't i wouldn't use yeah. the word evil all right. personally all right but also you have still got to still you know we've got to remain retain our human capacity to be to be shocked by war you know it, it is important that people are it is important to be outraged on that level it's, and war is an outrage i mean war is outrageous like it's a weird thing that humans do that like no other animals do that is just that is that is appalling and is almost and we should never be sort of um desensitized yeah part of the reason why i wanted to talk about this is because of like Keir, you know talked about his experience in the beginning like i had a similar experience like coming from a background of working on conflict issues you know self-determination of people in palestine etc like having to deal with day on day out as part of my daily work like you know people being killed people being harassed like human rights abuse like the pictures, the stories, the narratives. Like I thought that something like Ukraine, I just, I just thought I wouldn't go through kind of that, the emotional cycle that I did, and it actually has affected me when I caught up with the news in a kind of in that kind of basic way. So I, so I was going through that myself and thinking, okay, what is the how do I develop this? How do I accept what I felt because these images and stories and whatever are coming to me live? 
which is, you know, not to say that this stuff isn't happening all over the world to other people as well, but because of the way it's being reported in the UK and I'm in the UK, so I'm on the receiving end of this, it's going to affect me and it's affecting me because I'm an empathetic human being. But then how how do I let it not influence too much my ability to have analysis and create strategy and build alliances? I mean, what we probably all did was go and read about it and listening to listen to podcasts about it <laughs> that, that and that, I, I did that and it ba- basically totally helped me cope with the situation if we're just going to use the word cope that is again on the left that there is access to to to, to actually pretty pretty solid analysis that you can go to yeah i thought I have that's to right say, people I, podcasting yeah. is the most useful militant activity there is <laughs> I mean, no i withdraw that statement i infamously don't listen to podcasts but i did uh, um I, I did think the uh, Navara Tiski Sour on the second of uh, of I think it was um, of March was just incredible, and that's the I mean, as in it was fantastic, and that's the one where they got the clip of Hil- Hillary Clinton, which I did think was extraordinary. My understanding is Hillary Clinton was saying, "Yes, we funded the Mujahideen, you know, the the Islamic extremists in the 1980s to fight the Russians, and the same should be done again in Ukraine." Where she was talking about the level of geopolitics and U.S. interests. She was not talking about the thousands of people who are going to die. She was not talking about how the outcome of Afghanistan is absolutely catastrophic in terms of human life. And she was basically saying, "Yeah, but it kind of it seemed to be." She was saying it worked. For, for us so you know if we have a civil war in in ukraine it seemed to be saying the inference was it wouldn't be the worst thing for us there was yeah. a, there was a guy one of the one of the brave mujahideen um osama bin laden i think his name yeah. was yeah. i don't know what happened to him afterwards yeah. um, i've lost track of his story but i think there was some blowback you know um, fitting into all of that is like people have been raising it a little bit over the last week or so about Tony Blair's support for Putin when uh, Putin raised Chechnya or invaded Chechnya. Actually, it probably wouldn't count as an invasion. I think they were invited. But anyway, they raised Grozny, which is the capital city of Chechnya, killed, I think, 300,000 people or something. Like, really, really horrific. And But at that time, Putin was, that was seen as Putin was a good guy because he was fighting uh, Islamic militancy, basically. But it depends whether the Islamic militants are the goodies or the baddies, like over history, whether they're useful or not for the Western powers. And this is this is what I mean, is that I don't yeah. think it's about memory holding. It's about showing up the the interests of like going back to imperialism and that like 2005 discourse which we seem to be at again like what are the global interests and power here and i think that is that always has to be the left's job it's like where is where are the interests where is the power and look at that first and understand that um as a point of departure to understand what some of these people are saying you know when hillary clinton and reagan etc like have these conversations you know that might be a good a good way to go into this discussion about why wars occur. But the traditional left thing is to think about it's it's almost you know there's a little bit of a parallel with with the realist position in international relations is to think of it in terms of of, of rational calculation of interests and competing perhaps competing imperialisms and so forth. And to be honest, you're going to get quite a long way with that. But of course, other people think about war. Uh, in other in other ways, I you know there are things such as ideologies involved, 
which give people a different conception of the world and therefore give them a different conception of what's possible and what's not possible, etc. Then there are sort of like psychological uh, explanations of, of of war. I think it's interesting to talk about those. I haven't actually got a solution to to why wars occur, but and then there's also sort of like perhaps more anthropological um, angles into this. You know, like what role does war play in human history? When we talk about war, we're talking about the same thing all the way through because they look very, very different at different times in history. Um, you know, does this, what's the relationship between war and the state? You know, uh, the, the 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 development of states. Uh, you know, all of these things. I think you know it, it. Basically, they complicate a picture in which we can just say it's to do with interimperious rivalries. Yeah, I mean, it, it complicates on one level, but I think from a state's perspective, often it simplifies it. Like what going to war often does is it kind of cleans the slate when you have yeah. when you have prob- like internal dynamics in a country. I'm talking about like from a national borders perspective, but when you have you know a state that has you know issues in terms of its relation to its populace or the social contract or economically or whatever, like a good war with a you know an external enemy fictitious or real or whatever kind of uh, cleans that space for you to kind of start over again in terms of whatever your political program is um which is what one of the reasons why it's so horrendous is because you know they you know why why did the why did the UK get involved in the the Iraq war you know it's not direct we're not being invaded by Iraq yeah i don't want to move too fast here but like yeah that opens up another set of questions which is can you have collectivity without an enemy because that sort of that simplification of the of the of the of the public sphere or even the social sphere you know that's something that that somebody like uh, Ernesto Laclau would sort of point out of you know the the um setting up clear lines of antagonism is and, and for him it would be between the people and the and the elite or something like that or and an analogy for the elite you know so you, you then say well look you know there's war that one of the one of the slogans that you that you haven't seen so much this time but you normally see is this idea of no war but the class war mm. um, no no war between nations no peace between classes do you know what i mean and so in some ways it's this you know people sort of see it as a debate about where the who is the enemy where do the enemy's lines lie and so that's another way version of of what you're or what something you were gesturing at i think nadia which is wars can be very very attractive in some sort of way to governments because they can eliminate some of the social divisions that that are existing in society and exactly. redraw them and of course at this moment they're trying to be redrawn around uh, eliminating pacifism <laughs> or, or eliminating trying to draw an analogy between the far left and the far right as both Putin lovers somehow, uh, and therefore positioning centrism as the uh, as the rational position, I'm not quite sure, or something like that. But also what it does is put Britain in an interesting position because the UK is now able to speak as a European again through the voice of NATO, despite Brexit. Which is a very interesting position because suddenly there's kind of this alliance again, despite despite Brexit. So NATO has offered Britain that role at the moment. And, you know, it's an interesting dynamic on a geopolitical scale again. A really interesting feature of mid-70s, like punk music, which is easy to overlook now, partly because it seems 
a bit anachronistic to us was it anti-militarism so the clash stiff little fingers various other people had songs really con- really sort of condemning mostly sort of condemning army life as a, as an option for working class young men uh, so I, I, it was an interesting feature and obviously it became a really absolutely central feature of the ideology of anarcho-punk and, and people like crass one of my favorite versions of that is stiff little fingers the great belfast punk band their song tin soldier which is an expression of that sort of anti-militarism he Although in, in Belfast, so there's a you know there, there's another war going on, isn't there? Basically, which is you know the the troubles as they were called at the time. But I mean, for SLF at that moment, writing this song, it's condemnatory, but it's also slightly sympathetic. I mean, the line is "Tin Soldier," he's he signed away his youth. You know, it was presenting the soldiers who were who were on the streets of Belfast, policing and and sometimes killing members of the Republican Catholic community presents him as a victim to some extent, which is was consistent with their politics. I mean, the, the politics of SLF was very sort of sophisticated in terms of being sort of Republican, but not sectarian. Key, you raised this question of what, on a kind of anthropological level or psychological, you know, what level, like what's the nature of war? And it is I mean, it is a really important question, although I don't, I don't know if it's answerable, because I think it's one of the three unique human activities. A war, language, and tool use, arguably, are the three sort of uniquely human activities that other animals don't do. And, like, why? It, I mean, to be able to answer it, why? Like, you'd really have to have a whole sort of theory of, to some extent, a theory of, of human nature, which is quite obviously difficult. I mean, as far as I understand it, if you go into the sort of prehistory, if you go to the early history, you know, the the times when human beings first start having wars, what you usually seem to have on the basis of the latest scholarship is some got agricultural societies for the first time. So they're able to expand these, the populations are able to expand beyond which like nomadic or pastoralist or hunter gatherer societies can produce. But they're dependent on quite a strict division of labour. They become very hierarchical and they're dependent upon a really specific set of climactic circumstances. And then what often happens is climate change un- interrupts those circumstances. So you have these big populations and there, there isn't enough resources to go around and then people start fighting over them. And, um, you know, there's this famous exchange between Freud and Einstein. Or it's not really an exchange. Einstein asked Freud, like, why, why does war happen? And Freud, in some of his later later work, or he has all these theories about human aggressivity and kind of dis- displaced feelings of aggression and hostility that would be expressed in the in in some sort of state of nature being central to under the formation of culture. But in actually in the in the why war exchange, his explanations of like where where all that comes from are a bit less. I mean, then they're, they're less psychological than you might expect. I mean, he talks about just the irreconcilability of particular sets of interests, and 
I mean, one thing I think from my, I think it's important from my point of view for understanding any of the recent wars we've been talking about. And I think this is sort of all, always true to some extent. And it's consistent with what you guys were just saying a minute ago is that it's hard for me to think of examples of wars that don't have anything to do with like the internal conflicts within one within given societies producing a situation wherein prosecuting a war wasn't necessary to the sort of furtherance of their project you know, you can't understand even say the second world war without understanding that on some level you know sections of german society sections of german capital and the petty bourgeoisie are in a are, are engaged in a desperate backlash against the threat of communism and the threat of socialism. So that's that's the genesis of fascism, and fascism then necessitates you know mobilising the resources of the country into this massive imperialist war project uh, because it's basically giving people something else to do other than you know do socialism or have a revolution or whatever. And you know the Iraq War was. The Iraq War was basically about the fact that the American right, the Republican right, just had exhausted itself. It didn't have a political project after the Cold War. There was no reason for it to exist, really, given that the Democrats had aligned themselves with the kind of the the globally hegemonic block of finance capital and and tech. You know, the Democrats had aligned themselves fully with that kind of alliance between Wall Street and Silicon Valley. So there was just nothing, there was no reason for the Republicans to exist. They only won the election in 2000 through fraud. And they knew they had only won it through fraud. So what were they going to do? So a military project was like the only thing left for that political social group to engage in. And I think it's hard. I can't think of many exceptions to the idea, this idea that that is what really usually that is what starts a war. What starts a war is there is some faction within a in a country, a society that, that has the resources and ability and access to media, etc., to to whip up a war, to get a war going, and it has an interest in doing so because it's all the alternative is that it's about to be beaten by some of its rivals for power. I was just wondering. I was thinking, pondering, as you were saying that, Jeremy, whether the the, re- the reverse is true for civil war. Because I can think of several civil wars where external powers are very much involved in letting, in allowing forces to tip a certain way. Whether we're talking about the Lebanese civil war or, you know, it's it's never confined to borders. It, there's either internal stuff going on that creates a kind of exothermic need to go to war and expend that energy or the other way around. I mean, I think to link up with what um, Keir was saying a minute ago as well, I, I mean, indeed, the, the, the theory of collectivity proposed by people like Leclerc and Mouffe is that you only get a sense of a collective, a group, a collective agent when there's an enemy to fight. And so basically when it's, it's, all, it's, it's basically a sort of default option for ruling elites that are in trouble, that need to persuade the people to unite behind them and not unite against them, to to identify an external threat, an external enemy. Um, and do you mean? Do they talk about? Sorry to interrupt, but just to be clear, do you do when they talk about that? Do they mean a concrete enemy as in the form of a nation, or can it be? Do they talk about you know religion and like? Yeah, it can be abstract. Yeah, okay, it can okay. be abstract. So, but I mean, an, an interesting illustration of this. I mean, this is something we were we were going to talk about anyway. Is is the use of war as a metaphor in political discourse? 
So since the 60s, we've lived through this sequence uh, in the English-speaking world of wars on abstractions, like the war on terror. It's interesting to think about this, is the, the, the Iraq war, they can't justify it just as a, a war against the, the Ba'athist regime in Iraq. They can't. They know they can't do that. They have to try to sort of justify and narrate the war in Iraq, which is clearly in many ways just an old-fashioned imperialist militarist adventure but they have to justify it as part of this war on an abstraction which is the war on terror but you know that seemed that putin with his denazification chat i mean that's also i would be very interested to hear what 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 the discourse is inside russia which i don't feel i know enough of no i don't but let's well i think let's come back to the specifics of that in a minute i think this it's a parallel, though. I think that the what the denazification. I think is even more of a of a last minute grasp at some sort of justification. But it's a little bit like the link trying to link nine eleven to to the Iraq War. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, that is a that is a parallel. And we should also just just before we go on, to, we should also note a month ago, um, uh, Boris Johnson. It looked like Boris Johnson was going to be uh, thrown out of office. And of course, Keir Starmer was asking for him to resign. And now Keir Starmer is saying he should stay in office. I mean, it does fit quite nicely. That's all I'm going to say. That idea of the war on something, the war on abstraction, it goes back to the mid 60s. And the first 1951, actually. 51. Yeah, 1951 was when was the creation of War on Want, the organization that I worked on, okay. worked at oh, for 12 really years. Okay. And so that was, you know, Harold Wilson was involved in that. So that was one in the UK, the War on Global Poverty, which then became the War on Want, the organization. Yeah, well, that is really interesting. Okay, so it goes back further than that. But I'm still going to talk about this interesting sequence. <laughs> Which, I mean, I was going to situate a starting in 64 with Lyndon Johnson talking about the war on poverty. And Johnson had this very specific agenda. He, was a hard, he wanted to prosecute and legitimate the war in Vietnam, but also to get support for a massive expansion of the New Deal settlement. Johnson is like the classic, you know, liberal welfare, you know, pro-welfare, but also aggressively pro-war, pro-Cold War. So this dem- is the United Democrat. States we're talking yeah. about, yeah. Talking okay. about the United States. But look, well, it's really significant. It's still significant to British politics because on some level, that is still the ideal politics of like the hard right of the Labour Party. They think that's how you do it. That's the, They think that's the ideal form of politics. Muscular militarism against dictators and communists, you know, and, and fascists in principle, but they're not so bothered about those really as long as they're not threatening us. Um uh, abroad but at home you know yeah let's have an expanded welfare let's have an expanded welfare provision and more social equality and even a civil rights act sometimes like when when the conditions are convenient well, that's their politics and then that rhetoric of the war on poverty gets uh, retooled by nixon who talks who has who declares war both on crime and on drugs and then the war on drugs like goes on for years and years it's like and then is that, that rhetoric still around in the US? Uh, not really, no. It isn't, is it? No. The war, I well, say- I can tell you what's happened to the war on drugs in the US. It's been a massive surrender. <laughs> the drugs <Yeah>. won. <laughs> drugs <laughs> won that war. <laughs> oh, yeah. Silicon Valley was a lot, yeah. Yeah, well, that's great, it. Great, well, great it is, player. It, yeah, 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 yeah. It yeah. is Silicon yeah. Well, we talked about this before. That's, yeah. you know, it's my yeah. analysis. Silicon Valley was on the side of drugs and they are the most powerful players. We, 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 we need to do what we need to do an episode that's just called drugs but anyway <laughs> isn't that um 
Are you halfway through something, Jim? Because no, no, I think. Well, I no. Well, I just think it's interesting to observe that that notion of the war on something, whether it's a yeah. war on want, indeed, or a war, or the or an, the notion of class war, like from the left and from the right, all of those, all of those ideas, the use of war as a metaphor. Yeah, all yeah. of those ideas sort of assume that Leclerc and Mouffe are right. That the way you get people behind a project is you make it a war. And that is basically the, the, the very nature of any kind of collective agency is that it has to be sort of see itself as an army with an enemy. And of course, the liberal tradition broadly conceived, one of the things I think that defines the liberal tradition is it doesn't like that. It doesn't really like the rhetoric of war. It doesn't really like the rhetoric of antagonism. It prefers to imagine that there is some reasonable solution that can be found to all these problems that will include everybody's interests. And that's, you know, it's central to the liberal, historical liberal imaginary is the claim made by Adam Smith and his generations of followers that free trade like puts an end to war. The, the free market is the alternative to war. It's the alternative to, to, to antagonism. It allows people to compete, but without fighting each other physically. And it enables, and ideally it produces a perfect distribution of resources, of desires and their satisfactions, which makes, which renders war, you know, av- avoidable. So in between the kind of war or like, Uh, civilized solution is the kind of reality that almost every war has to end in some sort of diplomacy like people have to come to the table at some point and there'll be some kind of deal that is cut so there is brokering and there is deal making it's just not the sexy part of war it's not the bit that we talk about but people have to come to it to the table you know, war doesn't end. Yeah, well, you're right. Well, that's that. I mean, that takes to, us to the famous quote from Bismarck that war is politics by other means, extension of mm. politics by other means, and it's and often it's reversed that to say actually, polit- war, politics is the extension of war by other means, but which is also something we're thinking about. I mean, it's something we haven't really got into yet. Is is the whole theory that war plays a completely central role in shaping modern societies and modern states, and that it's naive to overlook it. But before we move on to that, though, can we just go back to that war as metaphor? Because when you said when you said um, the problem with the war on drugs is that drugs won, <laughs> like doesn't that always happen with those? Like so, war on drugs. So that's is it ni- like nineteen seventy one? It's a purely cynical political move by Nixon as an attorney as an attorney general to declare war on drugs in order to combat the black. Black Power Movement and the anti-war movement, basically. Yeah, yeah. But they create this situation, particularly through the 1980s. The CIA is importing cocaine into into uh, the US just at the point when crack cocaine takes off. They basically create this problem, this this situation in which drugs are this huge problem and absolutely tearing like inner city areas to pieces. You know, they so you have this imaginary enemy that you're going to create, and you basically create. The real enemy by doing so. The other thing is like you know, you know, pretending that Al Qaeda that that um, Saddam Hussein had links to Al Qaeda and was responsible for nine eleven in order to justify the war in Iraq. It utterly wasn't true. But you fast forward five ten years, and you have ISIS. You know, you've created a situation where what you feared was true, or what you're pretending exactly. was was true. Do you know what I mean? You've created uh, the terror. Yeah, and in a way, like you could sort of think of Putin in the same way. You know, Putin's invasion 
of, of Russia retrospectively justifies NATO in, in a way. But Putin is a purely Western creation. In fact, contemporary Russia is a purely Western creation. We created you know, the, 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 the oligarchs in, in Russia as a political decision. It's shock therapy, in fact. It's shock therapy. Let's go into that bit. It's actually, it sort of makes sense that, you know, what happens is that the Soviet Union in Eastern Germany turns, that there's the fall of the Berlin Wall, you know, the collapse of, of, of this sort of communist bloc. And what happens is, you know, we, we don't send in the, the nuclear missile to defeat Russia once and for all. We send in the economists, basically. Um, and they introduce this shock therapy where they they privatize these the huge, uh, of course, most all of the all of the economy is in public hands, and they privatize it and give it over to very very few people. You know that has such an effect on on living standards, such an effect on, on life outcomes. That the number of deaths in sending over the economists is is sort of similar to the number of deaths you'd expect from a limited nuclear war. Basically, they, it would, you know, in terms of deaths, perhaps it would have been better to send the missiles rather than the economists. But we created this thing, and we were discussing this. You know, the, the story always goes that the reason that 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 was ha- that happened that all of this all of this uh, wealth was put into the hands of these of these oligarchs, into, in, you know, into the into the hands of very very few people. The reason it was done was to prevent a return of communism. And then when we were discussing this before the show. You you made the point, Jeremy, that in fact what they were really scared of was that Eastern Bloc turning into a huge swathe of Scandinavian type economies. Yeah, I think I'd be careful about using the 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 word we as in we made this. Like I completely wash my hands clean of any responsibility of West Western powers intervening into the Soviet Union. I think we should play the fantastic song Killing in the Name of um, by Rage Against the Machine, which I think was originally released in 1991. Um, and then I was part of the cam- the anti-X Factor campaign. I think it was 2009 where we got that song uh, to number one. And I think it's a really, really good song against police uh, aggression and people ra- fighting random wars. Some of those that work forces are the same that burn crosses. Some of those that work forces are the same that burn crosses. Some of those that work forces are the same that burn crosses. Some of those that work forces draw the same that burn crosses. Personally, I do tend to neglect a bit this dimension, which many really serious social and political theorists think is re- is important to take account of. And that is the idea that really the war has been the definitive phenomenon driving social, technological, economic change. Maybe throughout history, uh, at least through the early through the modern period, going back to the Middle Ages. Uh, and there is a good case for that. I mean, there's a good case that war... It's because of the Napoleonic Wars that we get income tax. You know, it's it's the Second World War that absolutely incubates almost all of the the technological developments that give rise to the cybernetic revolution, the revolution in communications and digital technology. It's, it's and women in the workplace. Women in the workplace. The you know, the the whole idea of the modern welfare state arguably i mean it's very fashionable now among british historians to to play down the role of world war 2 in 
the formation of the welfare state. Uh, but historians like to play down any, any kind of highfalutin theoretical abstraction, which is their job. But there isn't, there's no getting away from the fact, in my view, that the war against the Nazis was what, if, if nothing else, it was critical in reshaping British attitudes to the state and to socialism for, for, for one generation at least. Yeah, I just think it's, I don't know what else to say about it beyond which, yeah, there is a very persuasive argument that war has been really crucial, that capitalism, to the extent that capitalism always relies on, to some extent, what Marx calls primitive accumulation, which basically just means accumulating property just by taking it, just by enclosing some land that some peasants had previously been farming and saying, it's now mine. And it is basically mine because I control the local militia and you don't. So get off it. To the the logic of colonialism, to going the logic of just going out around the world and taking other people's stuff and taking even their bodies because you can, because you've got better weapons and better military forces. It's very hard to dispute that to some extent capitalism does. But then even the thing is, the trouble is, the trouble is a lot of Marxist critique wants to say, well, capitalism has always been about war. Like modern capitalism has always been a sort of extension of war. The trouble is, actually, if you go back further into the history, I mean, pre-capitalist societies and pre-capitalist you know, social formations and political formations that you can't even really accurately describe as states were also organised around war. In fact, one, I mean, one of the best explanations I've seen for the genesis of colonialism and the reasons why people engaged in early colonialism were able to treat other human beings so appallingly, and in ways which were considered appalling even by the norms of their own cultures, like back in Europe, and their own religious traditions, is because actually those earliest colonialists had a sort of feudal set of norms, this kind of medieval set of norms, according to which war just was the basis for political legitimacy. So just what it meant to be the legitimate ruler of a place was that you, you had beaten another group of people in a war like over, over who should own that place. And that if you won, that was basically, that either meant that you were entitled to it because you'd won, or maybe it meant that God had endorsed your victory, but that was usually a sort of add-on. So I'd say war has been really, war has been really bound up with notions of political legitimacy and, and institutionality forever to some extent i mean and i i mean arguably you can't really separate an idea of war just from an idea of territory i think is a pretty persuasive argument that what deleuze and guattari call territoriality or what just not them but any anthropologist might call territoriality just the very idea that a people is associated with a particular area of land and that is what defines them and they are defined by their relationship to it has a tendency to, you know, that idea has a tendency to produce hierarchical institutions. It has a tendency to produce conflicts, you know. Oh, but then, of course, Deleuze and Guattari themselves, this is another thing we said we were going to be talking about, doesn't it? Deleuze and Guattari themselves have this really, really weird uh, bit in A Thousand Plateaus where they talk about this concept of the war machine. And the war machine... You have to correct me if your understanding of this is, is different here, but the war machine for them is a type of formation, a type of social or organisational formation, which is not at all the same as the state. 
And when they're writing about the war machine, they, they're getting all excited because they've been reading about the history of the steppe nomads, how the steppe nomads, these, these societies based around a nomadic pastoral lifestyle where you spent a lot of time on horseback. So you became very, very good at riding horses and good at arch, mounted archery. And then the steppe nomad, you know, for, for really for a couple of thousand years, there are wave after wave of steppe nomads coming out of the Eurasian steppe and just completely fucking up like the urban communities, even the big empires that are, that are there in Western and Eastern Europe and the Middle East and the Near East. And as Deleuze and Guattari get really excited, they've been reading about these nomads. They're really excited to say, wow, there's these like groups of people and they just live in tents, but they can just fuck everyone up because they're mobile and they're fast. And they're like, they're distributed. Like they're not sat in one place. They're not sedentary. And then they use the, they use the war machine as this kind of abstract term for what the nomads are doing, but also what like a revolutionary organization might have to do or, an, or some kind of radical thinking might have to operate like. Um, and I've got to say, I'm not, I'm not, I've never totally sure how well it works as a, as a formulation. Like it all become it becomes very abstract and it and they do seem to be saying that like yeah fucking up people with your horse and your bow is cool and um whereas having a farm or a city is like uncool and they they sort of i, I think, think that's they quite fair well they i the thing is i think that is what they're starting with and they know that's a stupid thing to be saying <laughs> and then <laughs> and, <laughs> and then they just have to keep tacking back and forth between wanting to somehow express what it is that's cool about that but is it is it that what you're saying is that they're taken over by some kind of imaginary of war? No, and how not, it fits. It's, it's not. It's not that I don't think because basically they, they, what they they're really fascinated by this other way of life, which is not they, they, which is around smooth space, the smooth space of the steps. Like Ukraine is 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 this smooth space? There's no mountains, there's no forests, etc. So you can be really mobile and move anywhere. They they contrast that to striated space, which is sort of static and, and hierarchized space. So cities, etc., where hierarchies come from. So you might go back to that that first point about um, about this sort of anthropological uh, idea of war, where, where where war happens when you get the first cities, etc. Because before that, you have hunter gatherers, you had nomadic people. So if you came into conflict around something, you just move away from each other, and that would be fine. But of course, you can't do that when it's static so Deleuze and Qatari say you know basically the war machine only it doesn't have war as its object until it clashes up against a state or a city basically it clashes up against these forces of striation and it's then that that um that it, that war happens and he says the dangerous point is when the war machine gets captured by the state and then it becomes war yeah, becomes right. the primary object of 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 the war machine basically and that's that's when you get you know the the horrendous wars of the of the last whatever and so when they talk about war machines what they really what they're talking about is like spaces where you can do anything we can go anywhere sort of thing and so they talk about uh, sort of analytical war machines uh, in terms of like revolutionary organizations which aren't sort of which are basically yeah, not so striated in the way that they think about the world. Groups of nerdy postgraduates have decided <laughs> that, that they they them, they themselves constituted analytical war machines because <laughs> because they'd read Deleuze and Guattari and didn't like boring old okay. Derridaeans. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's Good. any if it's of any use at all, basically, and it definitely is because Guattari is reading about a book about Genghis Khan and got very excited. There's no doubt about it. Um, 
But I think that that's the way that's the way round they see it. They're trying to say, look, it's not you know, it's basically these are th- the, the the Mongol hordes only uh, you know their object is only war when it, they bump into people who are living in a different sort of way or something like that. Yes, that I mean, is you the know, point. they basically did pillage the whole of the world. So I think the distinction is probably not particularly apt to somebody on the end of uh, one of their arrows. But um... yeah, it's, well, it's just wrong. <laughs> it's just historically <laughs> wrong that the war machine only had war objects when it came up against the state. It definitely, they were definitely into building a massive empire and subjugating yeah. everyone in their way right from the beginning. Yeah, I don't think it happened by accident. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a real classic, I mean, a chart here from the 70s is Elvis Costello's Oliver's Army, which is a song about mercenaries um, and the role that mercenary soldiers were playing in sort of post-imperial conflicts around the world, places like South Africa and Palestine. Uh, really, it's it's one of the darkest lyrics of any top 10 chart here. I'm aware of. Don't start the talking. I could talk all night. My mind was sleepwalking while I'm putting the world to right. Call careers information. Have you got yourself an occupation? The other way you'd you could take this sort of conversation is to think about Foucault's sort of. It's in one of his lectures in the seventies. I can't remember which one it is. Well, what the title was it of it was when it was translated into English. Uh, but he sort of does a sort of response to that, where he sort of yeah he takes this sort of like race war as the as perhaps the model basically. So it, so like war is not this this sort of like free flowing war machine. In fact, he sort of ties it up to colonialism. And the, the the sort of the need to create certain people as without worth, basically, and then that sort of boomerangs back into into European society in terms of the primitive accumulation that takes place in 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 colonial countries. Boomerangs back and becomes the enclosure of the commons, you know, the suppression of women, etc. Through through the sort of witchcraft um, hysterias and, and 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 so forth, to create the sort of the conditions for for capitalism in in Europe, basically, and so that 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 money that flows in from the empire has to come uh, along with this sort of enclosed, proletarianized population in the UK. So class war emerges out of race war, is sort of his sort of argument. But I mean, from that though, we could talk about the role that war plays in left. Like, you know, we have heard the words, the phrases "war of position" and "war of maneuver" on this podcast several times, yeah. right? Because <laughs> it relates to Gramsci. But it's like war. You can think of then think of war as like as like that is the point of the strategization of politics in a way. It's, that's sort of like war is politics by other means, or vice versa. Is you know that idea of strategy emerges out of that out of war but then goes into politics it goes into like revolutionary politics i think the use of the word war is in a way is to to de-abstract i don't know if that's the right way of saying it is to Why take not? away the abstraction to concretize, to conc- to concretize other, other things that are otherwise ab- abstract mm. because a lot of the time the left is making arguments that are 
the left's failure in a sense to capture the imaginary is because you're unable to talk about things except in terms of structures because that is yeah, the an analytical point yeah. that we have so once you talk about a war on something like class war like people understand it because class in itself is quite a difficult thing for people to get their heads around especially in the late part of 20th 20th century and the 21st century so when you say class war suddenly at least the war in it is understood because everybody knows what a war is that's interesting, actually, because and that presents us have a problem of trying to personify uh, capital, basically. I mean, naming the enemy. Naming yeah, the it's enemy. A, the people yeah. that have names and places and whatever, mm. and then you get into, you know, exactly. I'm broadly speaking, I'm quite conscious that as a Gramscian, I'm generally in favour of using these slightly militaristic metaphors because they're a way of getting to people to think strategically and to understand the need to think strategically about politics and the need to think about the fact that we are engaged in struggles between potentially irreconcilable sets of interests. But I'm also sensitive to and sympathetic to the views of people coming out of maybe an ecological tradition or an anarchist pacifist tradition or certain anti-militarist feminist positions who would all say, ultimately, that kind of militaristic language is part of the problem or it's part of an imaginary which can't be progressive in its effects or that can't be fully emancipatory and that what we need is some kind of a politics of peace. And I think, but I think that's a whole other subject for a whole other podcast uh, in the future. Yeah, I agree. We need to do an, a, an episode on peace because I think starting from that word would would, would produce a, a very different conversation. So let's end let's end let's end war now. Is a good slogan to end on. End war now. This is Ashley.